0: John chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The title of today's sermon is, by the way, uh, Feeding on Christ, the Feeder. Feeding on Christ, the Feeder. Um, Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that none be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the 5 barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this of a truth that prophet, this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus, therefore, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word and feed us what things that thou hast given me to distribute to thy sheep. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, of first comment I want to make on, make has to do with um, a general comment with respecting textual uh, criticism. One of the things I appreciated when I read some commentaries on this is that one of them pointed out that of all the miracles that the Lord did, this one is common to all four Gospels. Um, I think you can appreciate that each of the Gospels might have something different to say. Some don't include miracles that others include. Some don't uh, include, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. Others have it. So the Lord uses different means and different um, things that he has placed in his word to teach us little subtleties about himself. And so when you look at the Gospels they are unique each and of themselves and all of them were given of course by inspiration of God. When I read a commentary where they will say or suggest that one Gospel writer relied upon another Gospel writer, I think to myself, that individual does not appreciate the inspired nature of God, so when you hear that, ignore those comments and disregard them, because every gospel writer, indeed, every everyone that took pen to um, write down the things of the Lord did just that. He wrote down the things that the Lord impressed upon their heart to write. Second Peter chapter one verse uh, twenty one says "For the prophecy came old came not in old times by the will of man." But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each individually spake as they were moved by the Holy, God, holy Ghost. Every jot and tittle is in here that the Lord would have us to have, and it came by inspiration from Him. 2 Timothy 3.16, again, we're familiar with that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and indeed... It is. Everyone is given by inspiration of God. So God has put slight differences in each of these different accounts of that same miracle to uh, teach us different things about Christ, teach us different things um, that he would have us to appreciate. So this one includes a verse that none of the others have, and it's consistent with the Gospel of John. And as you recall, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the Gospel of John in these uh, particular days is because it speaks of his divinity more than The other gospels. Matthew speaks of him as a king, Uh, Mark as a servant, Jesus, uh, Luke is Jesus the man, and here we have Jesus um, the God. And so um, I want us to appreciate that as we go through this. Um, Our deacon read this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 20, and I wanted him to read that uh, for us this morning because it speaks about God's providence of his people as they wandered in the wilderness. And that's what we're going to see here in kind of a big picture view here. And speaking of God's providence in the, as they wandered in the wilderness, what the Lord was doing was proving their hearts. And so that was the takeaway point this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Hence, we sang the hymn here about um, God leading us along. And that's uh, just as the Lord led his people through the wilderness, he's leading his people through the wilderness of this world today. Now. God could have, if he had wanted to, taking them directly from Egypt into the promised land if they'd followed the coastal route up from the Mediterranean, uh, by the Mediterranean. He could have done that, but he did not do that. And so, as our hymn um, said this morning, that's, they got there, some through the water, some through the flood some through the fire, but all through the blood. If you look at the historical context in Genesis chapter 10 and, and um, what the Lord teaches us in the Bible there is that the people that were in those lands when the Israelites came into the promised land did not go through the water, they did not go through the flood, they did not go through the fire. None of them were there through the blood. And so the dispossessed people, the people that were dispossessed by the Israelites, did not go through any of those trials to get into that land. Now, how does that apply to us today? There are lots of people in the so-called Christian community today that did not get in the church through the blood of Christ. And as such, just as the Lord says, I think in Second Peter, that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Those people will be dispossessed and put out of the church on that great and terrible day of judgment. The Lord speaks about this in Matthew chapter seven. Uh, verses 21 through 23, where he says, On that day, you know, many will say to me, Did we not, um, you know, prophesy in thy name, cast out devils in thy name, do many mighty works in thy name? And he will say of them, Of a truth, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. They were not in the church doing things really by his power. They were doing it uh, through some other agency and, some, and through some other uh, means. So we have this big picture set before us here, is what I'm trying to share with us. Is there is a there is a, a obviously a connection between the things that take place in the Old and the things that take place in the New Testament. And the Lord is teaching the, the same lesson all the way through um, the Bible here. So the things that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 apply directly to what we're going to read today about the Lord proving their hearts. He specifically says that with respect to um, Philip here, that he asks him to prove his heart. But yet the Lord really is trying the hearts of all of the uh, disciples, as we'll see here in a minute. So with respect to the geography, this takes place here at the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is also identified here as the Sea of uh, Tiberias. And we're going to see that the Lord is going to sail from the west side of the lake over to the east side of the lake where this takes place. And then he's going to sail back to the west side of the lake. And we're going to see the people running after him. uh, And the question is, why are they running after him? And the Lord will tell us why they are running after him. So when he sails from the west side to the east the people run around the lake and it says that uh, in some cases in one of the Gospels it mentions that they actually get there ahead of him. They kind of watch him where he's going and they um, get there ahead of him. Um, in um, the Gospel of Luke here um, it says that when the Lord got there he taught about the kingdom of heaven and healed them also that had uh, were in need of healing. So Uh, Luke contains a little bit more information about what he did once he got there. Not in this gospel, because there's another emphasis here. Um, In verse 2, it shares with us that they followed Jesus because they saw that the miracles he had done, not because that the miracles testified as to his divinity. Now, you remember what we had covered in John chapter 5, that the works that the Lord did acted as a, um, a testimony or a testifier, testifying about how he was equal with God, about how, as we had read earlier in John chapter 5, about how he can raise from the grave whomever he will, that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. That they didn't pay attention to. They were just looking at the works in terms of what, they, um, what might be um, afforded unto them and not that they testified as to who he was, They were interested in what the Lord might do for their flesh. And they will follow him back across the sea for what he might do for their bellies. And that is affirming a testimony that is against them. And the Lord says that in verse 26 here, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So initially they one go to one uh, they go from west to east because they saw the miracles and were hoping perhaps a healing amongst themselves and then they run back because they enjoyed the uh, the fleshy nature of the meal that they had uh, partaken of um, so they do not seek after that which might quicken or feed their spirit and uh, John uh, chapter six verses twenty six and twenty seven. Again, I'll read that it says Jesus answered them and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, seek ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now he's going to teach us a spiritual truth here. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give unto you. So again, naturally, this has application in our churches today. We ask ourselves, why are people in church? Why do people go to church today? Is it for the benefit of their eternal souls? Or is it to meet their felt needs? Which churches do you see growing in great numbers? And what is the pastor preaching? I generally find that he's meeting their felt needs, their emotional needs. So do they go that they might hear the words of eternal life? Or is it because they are seeking fleeting temporal comfort? Is it for a sense of community? And I'll put that word in quotes in the context of a social group. Or is it for fellowship with the saints who are united with God through Christ and therefore united one with each other? Every person needs to ask themselves this question. Why are you interested in going in church? Of a truth, the scriptures say in Psalm 14, verses 2 through 4, it says here, Actually, I'm not going to read all those, just verse 2. It says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And so here we have in a spiritual parallel, the Lord Jesus is upon the top of a mountain overlooking all of these people, the multitudes of people. And what does he see? He sees people that understand not and seek not him as God. This we read about in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. That's the answer there. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. So the psalmist is saying the same thing that we're seeing acted out here. The Lord is up on the top of the mountain looking over the multitudes and see if there is any that understand and seek God. And the answer is no. <laughs> there, is, there is none, as um, the Lord writes in uh, Romans 3, 11. And so we as Christians are ever admonished to examine ourselves, see whether or not we are in the faith, and to give diligence to make our calling and election sure. Every Christian should do that. And so it is through the various trials that we experience that the Lord proves our hearts to ourselves that we might better answer these questions, which is what he does for the disciples here. Um, which we will see time and time again, that they will fail. Each time he proves them and tries them, they fail. And the purpose of this is to help us ultimately to appreciate that it is he, Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And it is he who must ever work in us and keep us lest we will fail to enter into the promised land, the eternal glory of the heavenly Mount Zion. Now in verses 3 through 5, it talks about Jesus going up into a mountain. And so from the other Gospels, we can appreciate that he was looking for time alone and rest with, quote, leisure to eat. It says in one of the other Gospels that leisure to eat with the disciples. But we see that this is not to be, as I would mentioned earlier, there's a, a... there's no expectation with Christ. Christ knows everything that's going to happen. But with respect to the disciples, they have this idea that they're going to get along with him and that they're going to have a time to rest um, and uh, at leisure eat with the Lord. Uh, however, um, we see here that the multitudes come to him because they have needs and he ever works. And faithfully serves. So Christ sets himself before us again as a wonderful example, and this is something that we should ever be prepared to do. It is, prepare, it is uh, prudent for us to ever be mindful of the brevity of this life, that though we may be tired, our Lord sets before us the example of service. So we are to give the gospel whenever we can, under whatever opportunity happens to present itself. And this we would do, of course, peaceably, never striving with people nor casting our pearls before swine, but simply following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 4 here, we have a comment that is unique to the Gospel of John. We don't see this in the other ones. It says, And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And so the Lord is setting us here, setting before us here. Though this uh, account here of the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, there's this almost a parenthetical statement about the, um, the timing of it and that the um, Passover is near. Now, this you'll recall is also the Gospel which uniquely identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. So we want to connect some of these verses here because again, the Lord is, set, is being set before us here. Whenever we look in Scripture, that is uh, our desire, is that we would see Christ for who he is. And the Lord does set that before us and gives us these little clues here. So here we're going to enter into a rather broad picture of what is set before us here, respecting the cross of Christ. Now, the Passover points to Christ as the Passover lamb, which was to be fully eaten in a feast the night preceding the Israelites' departure from the house of bondage. Verse 4 here even tells us that it is a feast of the Jews. And as you read all of this, you want to look past the superficial understanding of this feast to the spiritual import of it. So think not of the outward Jew, but of the inward Jew, the one of whom circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. That's the spiritual truth that's set before us in Scripture here. Not the outward, but the inward. That's what's important for us to learn. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 4, it says, speaking of um, the Passover lamb, it says, If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count as for the lamb. Now, as this particular miracle here on the mountain is going to play itself out and all have eaten as much as they would and were filled, we see that there remained 12 baskets, indicating that their neighbors next to them, which in a gospel context would be the Gentiles, um, could eat as well. So keep in mind here what took place with respect to the Passover lamb. It was to be completely consumed. And if you knew that you were going to have extra, why you should have invited your neighbors over and then they would have been covered under the same, within the same doorpost, um, and they would have eaten of the same meat that you ate of. Now, in the Jewish economy, because that's what is set before us here in terms of the audience, um, which we need to appreciate, we have that which the Jews ate when they were freed from the house of bondage. That's what they ate when they were freed from the house of bondage. And the meal here has some sense of identifying the one who ate the meal with the object of consumption, which, of course, is the Passover lamb. There's a relationship between eating something and the object with which you eat as set before us here in the Levitical law. Now, that which then followed, that was followed by the food that the freed Israelites ate as they wandered in the wilderness. And that food, which you know as manna, did not cease until they crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. Now, so here in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to speak about both of these foods here and how it relates to him. So we're seeing a wonderful drama uh, set before us here that speaking about Christ. Now... First, the Lord speaks very plainly about the manna. This, this, his conversation about their discussion about the manna follows what took place around the mountain here. He speaks about the manna and its relationship to him. This he says in John chapter 6, verse 51. He says, quote, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this world, for the life of the world. So he does the miracle. He feeds 5,000 people with bread. And then he says, oh, I am the bread of life. And then he talks about um, the bread uh, is likened unto his flesh, which he will give for the life of the world. Then a few verses later, Jesus speaks about eating him and uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He gets more particular and talks about eating himself and, um, personally. And this he does in verse 56, only five verses later in John chapter 6 when he says, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. So he's showing us uh, the relationship between the object with what you eat and your identification with that object. Now The Jews should have understood this in the context of the Levitical sacrificial offering system where the priests were required to partake, accepting the blood, and the fact that they had done so, it's indicative of their unity with the sacrifice. Now, I said accepting the blood. Many places in the Levitical law it says that you should not drink blood because the life is in the blood. And then he's saying, you've got to drink my blood. Why would you have to drink the blood of Christ? Because the life is in the blood. In a spiritual context, the life is in the spirit. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But nevertheless, the Lord is putting all of this before us here with respect to this miracle and the fact that he's feeding these people uh, bread, of which he says is really a picture of himself, not only as the object that is eaten, but the provider of the food as well. So as we move into this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, while it's a truly remarkable miracle in every respect, we must ever keep in mind what spiritual truths the Lord is setting before us here in terms of who He is and His liberating and sustaining relationship to us. Keep in mind who He is and His liberating and sustaining relationship to us. And this, we will recall, is not unlike what the Lord taught us in chapter four, with respecting the woman at the, Samar- the Samaritan woman at the well. When we were there, we learned that the water which sustains a man is not that which is drawn from an earthly well, but rather that living water which is freely flows from the well of Christ. A very similar lesson, the Lord builds on these spiritual truths. And uh, we saw in Deuteronomy that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so the words that proceed out of the mouth of God are the words of life. And that's what the disciples will say in John chapter 6. After the Lord gives them that hard saying, uh, he asks them, will you leave? And he says, well, no. Um, in verse 67, the Lord said unto the twelve, "Will ye go away? Will ye also go away?" In verse 68, then Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Christ is the Word of God. He is Himself life eternal. Um, and so we appreciate again these wonderful spiritual truths that the Lord has set before us here in John chapter 6. Now, in verses 5 through 9, the Lord tries their hearts. And so again, we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 8 that our deacon read this morning. And the takeaway point was that we might appreciate in our lives how the Lord works with us and to try our hearts and, and prove as to whether or not um, we love Him. Now, of a course, of a truth, the Lord always knows that. He knows whether or not we love Him or not. But what He's doing is opening our hearts unto ourselves. You know, Jeremiah says that the heart is des- uh, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Then it asks the question, who can know it? Well, the Lord knows it, and what he wants to do is have us appreciate the depraved nature of our own hearts and how we must look to him and uh, for a new heart, that he would take out our stony hearts and give us a heart of flesh. Now, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples, when this issue of... of um, when the day draws to an end, the disciples uh, tell Jesus to send the people away. <laughs> I think that's pretty indicative of their hearts, that their hearts lack compassion or true love, which is contrasted with the Lord, who the Scripture says looks on the people with compassion. With compassion. So then we read that uh, Jesus tells his disciples to give them something to eat. So, I would characterize that as a bit of a pie in the face moment. They've just told them, you need to have everybody go home so they can go home and eat. <laughs> and the Lord looks upon them with compassion and says, You give them something to eat. And so starts this process of self examination, whereby the disciples realize that they can't by themselves do what the Lord is asking them to do any more than we can in and of ourselves minister of the things of the Lord to those around us. We can no more do what they couldn't do without Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2, 16, it says, and who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to minister the things of the Lord? Only one, and that is Christ himself. So what do they do? They look around and they take stock of what money they have. They have 200 pennyworth. And that's not enough to give everybody even a little bit. Um, They find someone who's got five loaves and and two fishes. None of their resources are enough to do what the Lord has asked them to do. Let us never be guilty of doing what the Israelites did with respect to their failure to look to the Lord. In Psalm 78, verse 19, it says, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? That's to be understood. First, in the superficial, that will the Lord provide? He's brought his people into the wilderness. He's going to take them to the promised land. How are they going to eat? Who is going to feed them? And this is an interesting thing that you can ponder. They came out with much cattle. (laughs) They came out with much cattle. And every day they would have had to smell the cattle being sacrificed unto the Lord and being burnt. And yet, that's not their meat. That was the Lord's portion, and the Lord provided for them their portion. He did give them manna from heaven, and uh, He gave them quail on a couple of occasions, and that didn't go well for them. But nevertheless, we should never ask the question whether or not the Lord um, can furnish a table in the wilderness. Now, in a spiritual context, in a spiritual context, we need to appreciate that somewhere the Lord will provide spiritual meat for us. There are some who have taught and contended that the church is dead, and I really strongly disagree with that. It was a very destructive teaching uh, throughout the Christian community. God will always provide a table in the wilderness. His word is being preached somewhere. And so um, we can expect the Lord to sustain us and provide us with what we need for both ourselves and to those that minister the word. We must ever be mindful that the Lord can do and does exceedingly abundantly above what we ask. It is the Lord here we see in John chapter 6 who will freely feed all of those people using what meager means we, his disciples, think we have available to us. Does that make sense? He will freely feed all of these people using what meager means we think he has uh, made available to us. Obviously, the Lord is a storehouse, uh, a granary, if you will, of infinite depth. But we can't see that, and we don't appreciate that until we see our want, until we see our lack. Then we go to the Lord, and as we see in Genesis, um, with respect to Joseph as a type of Christ, he then opens the storehouses and feeds um, the people. So while the cross is ever in view here, we should appreciate that the bread of life was purchased for us by Christ at the cross. The bread of life that is freely given to us is Christ himself, and that was purchased for us by Christ at the cross. There's an allusion to this in um, in Isaiah chapter 55, which the Lord takes us to in verse 27 in John chapter 6. In Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, we read, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Is that not what the Lord told the um, the woman of Samaria? Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Is that not what the Lord said in verse 27? Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Which the Son of Man shall give unto you. As he continues in Isaiah 55, Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delighteth itself in fatness. Incline your ear. And come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sheer mercies of David. Christ is that covenant. And so the reality here is that the Lord, the reality of that which the Lord is setting before us here on the mount is that he freely feeds these people. And it's a picture of, of course, feeding them of Christ himself, as he spoke about in verse 27. So as we continue... In verse 10 here, the Lord says, make the men sit down. Now, every Christian, uh, I should say every Christian, but many Christians struggle with the busyness of this life. And sometimes you have to be made to sit down and to slow down in our busy lives to be fed by the Lord. I know that I am guilty of that. You have to be made to sit down. So sometimes the Lord will do things. As he is with one of our brothers who went to the hospital, he's sitting down right now. I mean, he's he's laying down and he's resting. The Lord is setting him aside for a time here, as he will with um, us at various times in our life, and have us slow down and meditate on the Lord. In in the Gospel of Mark, in uh, verse 39 of chapter 6, it talks, says here, that the Lord commanded them, commanded the disciples to make the people sit down by companies upon the green grass. So it's giving us a detail here um, that we can appreciate that our God is a God of order because he's having them sit down by companies. Um, When we consider our God as a God of order, we can see that in his creative endeavors. All around us, we can appreciate and see uh, scientific principles that are indicative of his order, scientific principles that we take advantage of when we build uh, a lot of the machinery that we build. They, everything has to follow these orders, the first and second you know, and third law of thermodynamics. These things have to reliably um, operate that we can make machines that then we can feel safe in because they employ the order that the Lord has set before us here. The Lord also utilizes order in terms of his governance. Of of his church, he's made some pastors, deacons, teachers, evangelists, and he's created various principalities and powers, which all operate according to um, those uh, ordinances established uh, by God. Now, here in the Gospel of John, we see that it says there was much grass, and Mark, as I'd mentioned, it says there was green grass. So the people here are made to sit down where there is much green grass. And we should appreciate the uh, another spiritual um, truth that the Lord is teaching us here with respect to his people being sheep. <laughs> and we know that sheep feed on grass. And I'm supposing they like green grass better than dry grass. Psalm 23 three we're familiar with it, says, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. So this is all Psalm 23 is in the imagery of we are the Lord's sheep. Here he's making them sit down in green grass, in a green pasture, if you will, though he's on the mountain. So our Lord is setting himself before us here as our good shepherd, feeding his sheep through his ministers. For Jesus gives to the disciples, instructing them to distribute the food amongst the people. Now, there's no strain upon the picture or upon the scriptures here to infer that the Lord is setting this imagery before us here because it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, again, speaking of this, there's no stretch here in terms of the imagery. He says there, quote, Jesus was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. So this imagery is set before us here of Jesus as the good shepherd, which the Lord identifies himself as in John chapter 10. So again, this is, we can appreciate the unity of Scripture as the Lord uses so many different means and agencies to help us to appreciate who he is and who we should turn to as one who will meet all of our needs um, consistent with him as the good shepherd and working through his ministers. It is in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, where he tells Peter three times in three different ways to feed his sheep, shepherd his sheep, uh, and feed his lambs. The Lord taking ownership because they belong to him, and yet he's working through his ministers to, to um, provide for um, his sheep. So... What is set before us here we see in John chapter 6 is that Christ is both the food and the feeder of his sheep. Our all-sufficient God provides all that we, we, all that we require to both feed us, excuse me, to both free us from the house of bondage and to sustain us as pilgrims in this wilderness of sin. Now in verse 11, we see that the Lord gives Thanks, something we should all appreciate. We should all appreciate that it is good and proper to give thanks to God because we are acknowledging that what we have comes from God. And that, again, our deacon read to us in in, um, Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord makes it very clear there. I am the reason you get wealth. And so let us never forget that whatever we have comes from the Lord particularly whatever spiritual gifts we might have to minister unto others. That is, the Lord working in us and through us to accomplish these things for the benefit of his sheep. Now, um, consistent with with this idea that all that we have comes from the Lord, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So whatever gifts we might have and employ in the church, we need to appreciate that they come from God. Ephesians 4, 7 repeats that, it says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so as we see here, and as we do elsewhere in the scripture, the Lord works through human agencies and human agents to accomplish his ends. In Ephesians 4, he tells us that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He has given to the church these offices, these individuals, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And he will continue to do that, as it says in verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so the intent is the Lord is conforming us into the image of his son, and so he's provided these individuals and these offices towards that end. Now, here he's working through the disciples and he's proving their hearts and he's trying them and he's distributing through them. Now, how long this operation took to feed 5,000 people, I can hardly imagine. That's the number of men. There were women and children besides that. So it took a very long time for them to do this. And so all during that period of time, the Lord is working with the hearts of His disciples and proving Himself again to be God. And how did that work out for them? Well, He's going to try their hearts again immediately after this when, they, um, when He compels them to get into the ship and sail back across the river, and they are not going to do well there. And so it is as we continue to go through the scriptures that we're going to see the uh, disciples' hearts tried time and time again. And they will continue to fail until such time as he gives them the Holy Ghost. And so it is for us. We should ever look to the Lord um, to um, provide us with all that we need. Um, Now, um, the pastor's job is to feed the sheep. And that's what we're seeing set before us here. That is a a work of grace of God to um, equip his pastors to feed his sheep. But the sheep's responsibility is to eat it. And to acknowledge that it comes from the Lord, and so I 've said this many times in the past, what things you receive of the Lord you do in fact receive of the Lord, if you 're listening to me, you 're hearing me, then you 're not listening to Christ. I, I pray that the God will give these uh, impress these truths upon your hearts. they come from Him uh, and from not me, and we see here that they fed until they wanted no more, and so we saw the promise in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse nine that the Lord would bring them into a place where they would eat bread without scarceness. If you're feeding on Christ, then you are eating bread without scarceness for he is our infinite God and provides all that we would need. So in verse 12, we see that Philip um, says they were filled, uh, but Philip at the start of this says that there was but little, and yet they are filled with 12 baskets over. So we tend to look on the temporal, we look on the means that are before us and fail to appreciate what God can and will do um, for us. So they were filled. And that's what the Lord says of himself in verse 35 of John chapter 6. Again, speaking of himself, he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Just as he had told the woman at the Samaritan well that if she would drink of that living water, she would never thirst. So too, if you eat of Christ, you will never hunger. And so they gathered up the leftovers and so we should ever um, esteem highly the Word of God and that which we cannot receive now. Let us meditate upon and think about the things that uh, the Lord has um, taught us this morning, meditating on His words and then we'll have those later. Here, the bread is gathered and so I have no doubt that that was used to feed the disciples at a later time. And so it is those that minister of the Word. I do not go hungry. I assure you of that. The things that... I I teach to you, I feed upon myself, and I'll feed upon um, not only before I teach, but I'll feed upon it at a later time as well. So we see in verse 13 that they finished with more than that which they started with. And so we see the blessings of service to God for those that liberally share the manna of Christ. We get down to verse um, 15, and the nature of what's going on in the people's heart, of course, is always known to the Lord. And so uh, they say that they would make him a king, and he is not a king. Jesus is the king. And this is not something that man can ever do as though Jesus Christ needed to be ordained or crowned by earthly consensus or approval. He is the king of kings and Lord of Lord, ordained by God. So this is not only an administrative statement of Christ. Um, but it is one of his names. He is in Revelation 17, excuse me, 1916, He is said to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is His name. So as we close out this morning, uh, we are reminded that Christ is the king. He is our good shepherd. He gives of himself to feed His people. He is ever compassionate with respect to their needs, giving all that is required to free us, from bondage, and to sustain us through our earthly pilgrimage. To which I say, Amen. Amen.